It's a joy to have you here today. We thank God for your presence. If you like to sue people, you have a basis for suing me today. In the bulletin, I said that my text would be Second Chronicles 7.14. That's not true. You could sue me for false advertisement, I guess. But as I was going through my message and finished it almost, just about, God really impressed upon my heart another passage. And I hope it's God who impressed it upon my heart. You'll have to decide that when we're finished. So we have decided instead to look at the passage in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. That's what we'll be looking at this morning. I've entitled the message, though, and that remains the same, the why for the 40 days of prayer. Now, Pastor Clinton has already explained it, but we want to show it from a biblical perspective why we believe that prayer is so important in this time in our church's history. Now, most of you, I believe, are familiar with the man Nehemiah and what a man of God he was. He was an alien, actually, living in a foreign country, country that had placed the people of Israel under captivity. Many believe that he was actually born in Babylon, and he never really lived in Jerusalem, although his people were there. He became the cupbearer of the king, which was one of the most prestigious and significant positions in the kingdom at that time. Nehemiah, as you go through the book, you will find had an impeccable character, and he carried himself with great dignity. Using New Testament terminology, we would say that Nehemiah lived a respectable, orderly life, and he was a man without reproach. He was qualified to be a pastor according to New Testament standards. Now, a key word in this book is the little preposition, so. In fact, that word is used some 47 times according to the New American Standard Version of the Bible. And this shows that Nehemiah was a man of action. He was also a man of a few words. And he was a man who believed in prayer. He believed, in fact, that prayer and performance go together. In New Testament times, again, in the words of James, he was not only a hearer of the word, but he was also a doer of the word. And that little preposition so shows us that throughout the book. Let me give you just two examples from chapter 2. First, verse 4. The text says, Then the king said to me, What would you request? Now remember, this is when he goes before the king, and the king now is asking him a question. What would you request? Notice the word, So I prayed to the God of heaven. So I prayed to the God of heaven. This was such an important question that Nehemiah knew that he needed the wisdom of God to answer. And so before making his request known to the king, he prayed to the true king, God himself. And God gave him the words to say. So I prayed to the God of heaven. 
Then in verse 14, same chapter, it says, Then I passed on to the fountain gate. This is when he is back in Jerusalem now, and he is evaluating the situation. The walls are broken down. The king gave them permission to go back to help rebuild the wall. And he is now evaluating the situation. One of the things that you will find about Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a planner. He was an organizer. And he knew how to go about getting things straight. So before approaching the people as to the vision God had given him, he wanted to do a first-hand evaluation of the situation. He says, Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount, that's my horse, or some believe it was a donkey, for him to pass. In other words, the rubbish of the pass was preventing him from evaluating and making a plan for the future. But he did not allow the rubbish of the past to prevent him from moving forward. The next word says, So I went up at night by the ravine to inspect the wall. He went ahead regardless to the challenge, the obstacles that were in his way. He did not allow the past rubbish to prevent him from making plans for the future. Now, as you know, Nehemiah was authorized to rebuild the wall of the city in order that the temple might be safely enclosed. This goes, takes us even back to the book of Daniel, the Daniel chapter 9, a very significant passage. Nehemiah played an important role in the plan and purpose of God. Now, Malachi, the prophet, gives a background to this period, which took place about 430, 450 years before Jesus Christ came. But from this period on, up to the time Christ came, there was 400 years of what they call of silence, no revelation from God. And remember in the book of Proverbs, it says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Well, the people misinterpret that passage to read, where there is no big idea or where there is no big plans, the people perish. But the text actually says, where there is no revelation, the people go astray. They do their own thing. And during those 400 years, there was no revelation from God, and the people were doing their own thing. Now, here's the background then to what we want to look at today. Uh, as I said, Nehemiah was the cupbearer. Now, that cupbearer doesn't mean just like he was the maitre d' or he was a, he was a, a servant. Well, he was a servant, but I mean not that he was just a waiter or something like that. This was probably one of the most significant positions a person could have in the kingdom. Nehemiah ate the king's food and he drank the king's drinks. But, but the point is, he ate and drank before the king himself ate and drank it. When I was going through this passage, it remind, you see, in those days, you know, everybody's out to kill the rulers, even their own families. And they must have had some real potent poison, because this poison you didn't have to wait for a day, a week, or anything before you see the effects. Once you take it, you die. Now, Nehemiah was used for that purpose. This reminded me of something when one of the ladies, well, a lady who does some work for us came in. She says, Pastor Lee, I was sick for the past week because I ate some, oh, what do you call that big fish? Barracuda. 
So, because I eat some baragut, and I love baragut. I have a friend that they always grill baragut, and I love it. I don't think I could ever remember the time I got sick from baragut. I got sick from grupa and rockfish, but not baragut. But anyway, I remember when I was a boy, what we used to do, if we got a black fin rockfish, which is supposed to be poisonous, you're only supposed to eat the yellow fin uh, rockfish, or if we had a big amberjack or a barracuda, before we ate it, we would cut a piece and give it to the dog or to the cat. <laughs> now, if that dog or cat got sick or running in the bush and you don't see him, you better don't touch that. You know, that's exactly what Nehemiah was doing. The king would say, hey, Nehemiah, taste this. And if Nehemiah stood up, I'll taste it too, you see. So this is an important job that he had. Now, so we could say Nehemiah was living high on the hog in a sense. He had it the best life possible. He had no worries at all. He knew where his next meal was coming from, although he wasn't sure he was going to live after he ate it. But he knew where it was coming from. He lived in nice places. He traveled all along. Everywhere the king went, he went. In fact, verse 1 begins with the fact he makes out the point that he was in Susa, the capital at this time, indicating that he was not always there. He traveled with the king. So he had no worries. He had no concerns. But now notice how the book opens. Now it happened in the month Cheslov, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanai, one of my brothers, now we're not sure whether this was a blood brother or just a brother in the sense of being a Jew. And some men came from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and also about Jerusalem. That's verse 3. And then I look at verse 3. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now notice the response of this man who was living a very good life. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. See, that is the passage that struck me when I was going through my message. Nehemiah's response to hearing about the condition of his people, although he himself was not impacted by it. I want to examine these verses carefully because I believe they give us divine principles and directions for us today. And I am not concerned here with giving you big ideas that I might come up with or the elders might come up with. We are looking for revelation from God. We're not looking for big ideas, big vision from man. We're looking for revelation for God because that's the only thing that keeps us on the right path. So let's examine these verses very carefully. I believe they give us divine principles and directions for us today and helps to answer the question, the why for our 40 days of prayer. Let's go back to verse 2. I asked them concerning the Jews that escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. Notice, he went to them to ask about them. That shows the concern. That shows the care. He went and asked about the people, and he asked about Jerusalem, God's purpose. In other words, he was concerned for God's people, and he was concerned for God's purpose. And so the first principle we can get from this is that 
prayer reveals a compassionate concern about the welfare of God's people and God's purpose. Prayer reveals a compassionate concern about the welfare of God's people and God's purpose. Nehemiah didn't have to ask them about this. He was okay. He didn't have anything to be concerned about at all. But he had a concern for his people, and he had compassion for them. He had a concern for the purpose of God concerning his city, Jerusalem. Nehemiah took the initiative to ask. He didn't have to be begged or anyway. He took the initiative. He had a concern. He was concerned, I say, for both the people of God and the plan of God for them. The result is the manifestation of true compassion on the part of this man of God. I believe that this is also the major motivating force behind Nehemiah's giving himself to earnest prayer and fasting. His concern for the people of God and his concern for the plan of God for the people of God as well. I believe that should be our concern as well today as the people of God. Do you agree? Shouldn't we be concerned about the people of God? Shouldn't we be concerned about God's plan for his people? Yes, I think we should. Now, a compassionate and passionate concern is shown by Nehemiah. And I believe that a compassionate and passionate concern for the members of the incredible body of Christ here at Calvary Bible Church and for God's purpose for us should also be a part of our lifestyle. As Roland has rightly said, we cannot force anyone to pray. We, cannot, we should not force anyone to do what we believe God should have them to do. If they don't do it of their own volition, then they're not being obedient to God. They will get nothing out of it, neither will the people of God. In order for us to be in any way appraised by God as being faithful, we must do it because we want to do it, because we desire to do that. Our 40 days of prayer meetings should appeal to and bring out those who have a genuine care for the well-being of this assembly. That's my point. I believe that our prayer meeting should be an appeal, should be something that those who have a genuine concern for the welfare of this church should come out and pray, especially if you feel that we're not doing what we need to be doing or we're not where we are supposed to go. Someone has said, and some have seen this as very controversy, but I want you to take a look at it. There's somebody who's coined this phrase, prayer attracts the concerned and reveals the complainers. The concerned do not complain, and the complainers don't pray about what they complain about. Now, you come out this evening, and we will talk about this. I want you to know what you think about this. But I think this is true. Look at the prayer meeting and see who comes out. Most of the time, it's not the people who criticize or complain. It's the people who are satisfied in the sense that they know God is involved, but still concerned about the work, right? And so those who come out to the prayer meeting reveals a lot about their thinking about the church and about God's purpose. But then second, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. They said, the remnant are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Those are some distressful words. Now, here is the principle that we can derive from this verse. The genuineness of the need is based on valid 
information. In other words, sometimes we look at situations and we do not evaluate them carefully, and so a plan to meet the problem will not work because we have not evaluated the situation properly. Nehemiah is getting information from first-hand people, people who are part of Jerusalem, who went through the cap, who escaped the captivity but saw the results. They knew the situation well. Nehemiah had first-hand events, not what people said, not gossip, not hearsay, but first-hand. That's why we here at Calvary Bible Church need, at this point, to do a careful evaluation of our ministry. Are we achieving the purpose for our being here, being placed here by God? Or are we becoming so concerned about pleasing people, we really don't please God anymore? That happened in the church in Ephesus, as you read in Ephesus. Everything seemed good. Everything seemed outwardly well. But Jesus says, no, 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 you have left your first love. We need to do a careful evaluation of every aspect of our ministry. We look at it broadly, and we look at the choir, for instance, and we look at what happened when we were celebrating. The place was filled with people. You come back here today, tomorrow you'll find five or six people. What has happened? Is that God's will for Calvary Bible Church? What is the reason for it? Why can't those people, I counted nine men who were in the part of the choir that night. Only one of them were not regular attenders. All the others were regular attenders. That's the same thing with most of the people there. Most of the choir members attend this church, but they don't sing other than when we have celebrations. Something is wrong there. But now before we make a quick evaluation, we better examine it carefully to see what it is. Isn't that right? And we're going to go that way. We can go that way through most of our ministries. We can look at a Warner. A Warner is some wonderful work, but a Warner has lost people, true or false. It's not making the same impact. Now, that doesn't mean that the people here are not doing a great job with who they have. They have. But the point is, why don't we have more of our own people's children coming to a Warner? See the point? We have more children from outside than we have here. In fact, I understand that we have members who say, I will not send my children to Awana. Now, you see, something is wrong with that happening. And we must evaluate the situation. That is true of every aspect of the ministry. God has given each individual opportunity to serve him with a gift. If the opportunity is there, we should utilize it for his glory. Now, remember this, getting back to Nehemiah. Walls around a city symbolize God's protection of his people in Nehemiah's day. In fact, walls symbolize protection even in the pagan land. If a place was well protected with a well-built wall, the people would say God was protecting his people. Now, this means then that the walls around Jerusalem symbolized the protection of God for his people. But once those wells were broken down, the pagans were saying God was not with his people. God was not blessing his people. God was not, pro was not protecting his people. Nehemiah is troubled because of this, because God's reputation was being adversely affected by the pagans around, because they were saying God is no longer with Israel. 
How do we know that? The walls are not built. He is not protecting them. Nehemiah, in other words, is concerned about God's reputation amongst his people. He was concerned about God's reputation amongst his people. Defenselessness of his people was a reproach upon the name of God, as far as they were concerned. Beloved, that is also true concerning Calvary Bible Church. If God's love, grace, power, and holiness cannot be seen in the lives of its people, they cannot be seen by the lost, then they have no reason to believe that we are true disciples of Jesus Christ. They have none. God's name, the name of Christ, will be dishonored in the community and the world if his love, his grace cannot be manifested amongst us. Not only towards the unsaved, but how we treat one another, how we regard one another. How do we as members of this church talk about other members to unsaved people, our friends, our family members? All of that goes towards representing the character of God as far as God is concerned concerning his people. God's reputation, I say, is at stake by the way we live, the way we worship, and the way we serve our God, and the way we love one another. Now tonight, I might be picking up, we'll see how it goes tonight. We won't have a lot of discussion tonight, but we might look at Second Corinthians, I mean, Second Chronicles 7.14. But one of the things that struck me as I was reading that passage, remember how it begins? You know it well. If my people, who are what? Called by my name. Then I will heal the land. But that healing does not come until these things take place. But notice how he begins. If my people... My people. He is talking about the fact, hey, you belong to me. If you are called by my name. See, that's his concern. His first concern is his reputation. That's why I believe that many Christians today, listen carefully now. What was I going to say? <laughs> what, is the se what is the third commandment? Thou shalt not bear the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Many Christians are bearing the name of Christ in vain. Do you know what it means to bear the name of Christ? It means they don't mean no cuss. Now, it could mean that, but that's not the primary meaning. The primary meaning is do not say something about God in your life that is not true. Do not say, talking about the prophets, that God said this and he did not say that. If you say God said this and he didn't say that, you're using the name of God in vain. Many Christians today who call themselves by the name of Christ is using the name of Christ in vain, without profit, because they live a life that is dishonoring to God, but yet they say they belong to him. That's using the name of Christ in vain. Beloved, we've got to be careful with that, you see, very careful. God wants to protect his reputation. And what we do, the way we live, reflects on that reputation. If our people, for instance, don't come out to worship corporately because of something they don't like about another Christian or because they don't like how something is done, 
then they are placing their likes and their like, their dislikes above worship for God. You understand that? If you say, I'm not coming to work, worship with God's people in this place because that person goes there, that person says this, this person does that, that person that's therefore I'm not coming to church. What you're doing is putting the worship of God below your likes and your dislikes, your preferences. Now, some people say, well, I, I, uh, when I do that, I go someplace else. But see, what you do then is you simply contaminate that congregation with your sin. That's all. It'll show up sooner or later in that congregation as well. You'll find something else to complain about. Protecting the reputation of God is demonstrated by the way we live and we show love to one another. All right. Nehemiah, I say, is concerned about God's reputation. So should we. The implication that God is not in the midst of his people is reproach upon his name. A genuine concern for the untarnished reputation of Jesus Christ and not the success, the fame, or prestige of a leader or of a denomination or an organization is the evidence of true concern for God and his people. God must be placed first, regardless of how we feel. But notice another divine principle that has been drawn from this passage. Verse 4 says, When I heard these words, then I sat down, and wept. That's a response now. I, sat, I heard, I sat, I wept, I mourned, I fasted, I prayed before the God of heaven. Notice those action words. He heard, he sat, he wept, he mourned, he fasted, and he prayed before the God of heaven. Now, here's the principle. We must recognize that God is sovereign who is, and he is capable of meeting our greatest needs. No matter what the problems, no matter what the difficulties are, God is able to meet them if we, if we meet his decision, if we meet his requirements. God of heaven is a favorite expression of Nehemiah. Read the book. You see that phrase used again and again, the God of heaven. It was used because of his recognitions of God's supreme majesty and power. God to Nehemiah was above all. He is the great and awesome Lord God. So this verse indicates that Nehemiah was conscious of the sovereignty of God. And we must not forget that. God is sovereign over everything that happens. No matter how it looks to us, no matter who we think is doing something, God is still sovereign. This recognition is based on Nehemiah's deep and intimate knowledge of God through his word and personal experiences. See this as you go through the book. Nehemiah was a man who knew his God. Nehemiah was a man who knew the word of God. Nehemiah was a man who always was close to his God. We must also acknowledge the truth of the sovereignty of God and our need to be close to him. What we do demonstrates how close we are to God. And the closer we get to God, the more sins we will find that we are involved in our own lives. The closer we get to God, the more we will hate things that are not true. The more we will hate gossip and backbiting and character assassination. We will hate these things the closer we get to God. The louder you see people complain and criticize about other people and talk about other people, you know that they're not close to God regardless of what they say. Regardless, all right? 
Someone has said this, and I put, put it on the screen. When God is turned to in his supremacy and sovereignty, the biggest problems shrink into insignificant smallness. The contrite, sp- the contrite spirit is not filled with self-sufficiency, but with dependency on God who is sufficient. That's a beautiful statement, and I love it. You see, we have to be careful we don't come to a place where we believe that the only ministry we could be involved in is that if we got money to pay for it. In other words, the only thing I can do is if I could pay for it myself. The only thing I'm going to try to do is if I have the abilities, the capability, rather than saying if this is what God's will is, clearly spelled out in his word, then we should put our foot or feet. I guess you better put both of them in there. Put your feet in the water before you see the pathway through. We must put our feet in the water before we see the boat that's going to take us across. Then we know that God is at work. Do you understand what I'm saying? We are in a place now we are, we are seeming to think that the only thing that needs to be done is what we can do with the resources we have. That's a dangerous position to be in because faith is removed. Faith is taken away. And we've got to understand that God is sovereign. No matter how difficult, no matter how impossible the thing is, if God says, go ahead, you put your feet in that water and I'll make the pathway, then we do it whether we see the road or not. Amen? That's what Nehemiah is teaching us here. So a fourth divine principle is indicated here, and that is we must respond to valid spiritual needs with a contrite heart. Notice I said valid because many times many needs that are presented are false. They're not true. That's why careful evaluation is needed. But when we know, when we are convinced that a situation is valid, it is true, it is genuine, and it is something that is not pleasing to God especially, we should respond with genuine contriteness of heart. Because somewhere along the way, it's us who have moved away from God. God did not move away from us. If there's a lack of power in your life, if there's a lack of power in the life of this assembly, it is not God's fault. It is your fault, it is my fault, it is our fault. You understand? That's what we have to understand and be willing to acknowledge. But we like to blame everybody else. He's the cause, she's the cause, that thing is the cause. The way you do this, the way you, that's the cause. No, my friends, when you come to a body, if that little toe is booked, bucked, you know, booked, bucked against a table or whatever it is, you can feel that throughout your body. Isn't that right? Remember Achan? One mi- in the midst of millions. But God judged the entire body because of it. The same thing is true here. Nehemiah is going to demonstrate this in a moment. We must respond with contriteness of the heart, recognizing that it isn't God's fault if things are not right. It is our fault. Notice, I believe that Nehemiah had a contrite heart. And he believed, I believe, that God could respond to his humility. We as leaders here at Calvary Bible Church, as well as each and every member of the incredible body of Christ here, must, must have contrite hearts as we commit ourselves to seeing to it that the glory of this place in the future will outshine the glory of this place in the past. I believe Nehemiah had such a heart. That is clearly evident from his prayer in the verses that we're going to look at in a moment. 
But the prophet Isaiah has this to say about a contrite heart. Listen to the word of God. Let it speak to your heart and mind. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. I love the way Nehemiah prays and the way he writes. The high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. Oh, that we might look at God like that when we pray. Whose name is what? Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Now, if we want a renewal, if we want a revival, then we've got to meet these conditions. Be humble and be contrite because that's the ones that he revives. Amen? That's what it says. Beloved, we cannot work up or even pray down a revival. God has ascended in his time. If we say that we can, we want to have a series of revival meetings so God can come back in power, it'll never happen. God is the only one who can bring renewal and revival, and he does it sovereignly when he wants to, many times when we least expect it. All right? Now, this trait, the trait of humbleness and contriteness, is absolutely essential to of us being in the right spirit and attitude to be the recipients of renewed work of God in our lives. The meaning of the original word of contrite is crushed. That's the meaning. In fact, one Greek dictionary puts it powder. In other words, it's the idea of being crushed to powder, completely demolished in a sense. Here's how one commentator puts it. I quote, The contrite willingly submits to the destruction of that within him that is not pleasing to the Lord. The contrite spirit is open to correction by the Holy Spirit and is willing to confess what is below the Lord's standard. It is willing to crush what is not of him. That's a contrite person, a contrite heart, a person who is willing to be crushed under the conviction of the Spirit of God. This is the why, then, of the call for prayer for these 40 days, to bring us to a place of total dependency upon a sovereign, compassionate God whom we must worship in spirit and in truth and with an attitude of contriteness. I want you to notice quickly now Nehemiah's approach to God as he goes into prayer before God in verse 5. He always begins his prayer with adoration and worship. He never just goes in and asks God. First of all, he recognizes God, who he is, his majesty, his holiness, his greatness. In other words, genuine prayer is a prayer of worship always begins upward, looking upward toward God. And notice how he focuses on the attributes of God. He says in verse 5, looking upon his sovereignty, O Lord God of heaven. He acknowledges, he recognizes the sovereignty of God. Then he recognizes his omnipotence, the great God. He recognizes his holiness, an awesome God. He recognizes his faithfulness, who keeps the covenant. He recognizes his love, he's a God of love. He recognizes the justice when he says, with the, he keeps the covenant with those who love him and obey his commandments. Prayer, beloved, helps us to worship God 
with a great, with greater authenticity and humility. And this is we hope and pray to see happen as we meet, that we will become together in such a united fashion that our prayer to God will really be that of praise and adoration and not just pleading for things, but praising him for who he is. But supplication is an important part of prayer as well. In verse 6 he says, now he begins though not with asking for things, but acknowledging. He says, looking inward toward himself to show dependency. He first he says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you. This is a humble man. This is not a man of looking at God as being his bellhop who can just bring me this, bring me that. He looks at God as a majestic, omnipotent person, a holy person. And he noticed the perseverance. He says, day and night he was doing this, day and night. Now, this is true crying out to God. This is on an ongoing basis. And, you know, as, as the songs say, uh, God hears prayer in the morning. He hears it in the afternoon. And he hears it when? At night as well. Nehemiah demonstrates that. That's why we have no embarrassment to inv- ask you to come out to a 6.30 prayer meeting. You see? If we are really concerned about God's people, and if we are really concerned about God's purpose for God's people, we should be willing to pay, pray at any time. And Scripture shows us that this is a model here. He did it day and night. But then he goes into confession. This now is, shows his contrition. He says, and he deals with it first, both personal and corporate. He says, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Notice how he incorporates himself in the sins of the people. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances that you commanded your servant Moses. He didn't get up and say, see, those people deserve that because they didn't obey the Sabbath, because they didn't bring the right offering. They deserve what they got. He didn't say that. He says, I am guilty as well as they are. We have not obeyed, not only them, but me as well. Here is the truth here we've got to understand, my friends. We dare not begin a work or seek to implement a renewed ministry without confessing sins in our lives. We cannot do this if we have unconfessed or undealt with sins in our lives. God will not hear us if there is sin in our lives. It is clear as that. And by the same token, we cannot disassociate ourselves from the sins of fellow members of the incredible body of Christ. This is a body. We must realize that the sin of one is the sin of all. And that's a hard thing for us to face because we like to blame other people for, mis- for anything that's going around. Rather than saying, no, I'm a part of this, I'm as much at fault of this as you are. This identification with the sins of the body as a whole people, as a whole, is perhaps one of the most neglected aspects of most ministries and most churches. We just not like to assume the guilt of others in the body of Christ. But we have to if we really believe that the body is a body. This is where the sense of community comes in. And one of the things that I am praying that we might exercise and experience in a greater way, a sense of community, 
a sense of unity, a sense of oneness. When one member pain, I feel it. When one member glories, we feel that as well. We experience that sense of oneness and community. We have people right here in assemblies that you don't know, I don't know. We pass one another. We're members of the body, but we don't know their names. Now, some times ago, and it was brought to attention by one of our deacons the other day, I don't remember some times ago we had name tags, and we had a time that we would meet and talk with everybody and try to get the names. We have to do that again in order for us to become a little bit more personal with one another. Realize that we just don't pass one another in the aisle and whatever and call one another brother and sister. We've got to go a little further than that. And this is one of the things we're going to be working with. Um, so he was contrite in recognizing sin, his own sin, sins of the people, but that he did not separate himself from the sins of his people. But then he goes into the petition. First he looks outwardly, and he, he, he makes it biblical. He says, remember the, institution, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands... Then even if you, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. God is simply saying this. You do what I tell you to do and you'll have blessings. You don't, you're going to have trouble. It's clear as that. That's all it is. That's what he says in Second Chronicles. If my people do these four things, I will do these three things. I will hear I will answer, I will heal. But before that, we must humble ourselves, we must pray, we must seek his face, and we must turn from our sins. That's his command. Otherwise, no matter how much we pray, no matter how much we pray without turning from our sins, without humbling ourselves before God, he will not heal our land. He will not, because we're not meeting his conditions. God does not compromise on those conditions. The same way he does not compromise when it comes to salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ. Not in what you can do, not what you, uh, how rich you are, how white you are, how popular you are, whatever it is. The only thing that you can save you is Jesus Christ, placing faith in him. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ, Period. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. Period. Bam. Finish. No black, no, no com compromise here. No gray areas here. Black and white. You've got to come through me, Jesus says. That's the same thing when we come to prayer. If we don't put into practice these other things, humbling ourselves before God and realizing that we have sinned, that we are the cause for many things that are going wrong in our own lives as well as in the life of God's people. If we don't identify that and admit that and acknowledge it and come humbly before God and recognize that if anything is going to be worked out, he has got to do it. He's going to do it through us, but he's just not going to do it through anybody. He's going to do it through those who are humble, those who are seeking his face and those who are turning away from sin. It is clear as that. Christians have become so much a part of the world now, you cannot tell what is a Christian or who is not because it becomes so diluted. But then he goes on with petitions now. 
Notice what he says. Let me read this again, verse 8. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. If you return to me and obey my commandments, return to me is repentance. Then, even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place. Notice what he says. The place I have chosen as a dwelling, what? For my name, my reputation's sake. He delights in protecting and guarding his reputation. He goes on, verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attended to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name who delight in protecting your reputation. That's what he's saying. That's the position we must have. We are the servants of God as well, and we must delight in protecting his his, uh, reputation. Then he prays very specifically. He doesn't just say, now, Lord, bless me as I go out to do this thing. He says, now, Lord, here's what he says. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. This man, now remember, is the one who says, what do you want? What do you want me to do? And so Nehemiah is praying for a specific thing so God can answer specifically. We must do that as well as we gather for these 40 days. We should be praying for such thing as spiritual renewal, a love for God in our lives. We should be praying for holiness of lives. Our lives may be more pure before him. We should be praying for a recommitment. For instance, let's look at the choir now. We need to be praying for a, re- a recommitment on the part of choir members to ministering for the glory of God. Not just for giving Calvary Bible Church a great reputation for having good singing. That's the wrong reason. But rather to glorify God. We should be praying for the renewal of the Warner ministry. We should be praying for a commitment of men to prepare for leadership in the future. We are facing a future a way of life that is different from the past. We need men who know what's happening, They're aware of what's going on in the world, and men who have godly character, who are committed to Jesus Christ. Men who are willing to be trained, not just to say any old thing will do. We need to be praying for such men as leadership. We need to be praying for a sense of unity and community, love for one another. But above all, I think we need to be praying for humility, where we will be willing to confess our sins to one another, as James tells us, and to God as well, so that God will have clean vessels through whom to work as we look forward to these new 50 years. Amen? Let's pray. Perhaps you want to make a prayer to God right now. Perhaps you want to make a commitment or a confession. Do that right now where you are before we close in prayer and receive our benevolent offering as well. Just take a few moments. God has spoken to you in any way. Let God know that right now. Our Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for your promise that your word will not return to you void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which you send it forth today. We rest in that promise and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen.